Now Lot went out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made, so they made their, their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. The word of the Lord. Praise God. Amen. You may uh, be seated. Um, if we haven't met before, my name is Stephen. I'm a pastor here at Liberty. Uh, I one of my a show from geez, it was like 10, 15 years ago, 15 years ago now that this, this show was around. Uh, it was a show called Arrested Development, and it's, it follows this like incredibly dysfunctional family that they're just, like comedically self-destructive, make like and are just like destroying themselves all the time. And uh, there's a common refrain through Arrested Development where they say, I've made a huge mistake. Uh, and it just like that line by itself, it, it doesn't sound that funny, but when you begin to see them, it happen again and again and again, and it becomes this theme, it just becomes more and more funny. Like there's more and more taking pleasure in, in their, their misfortune. And it's like, you know, like me last night talking with my parents, telling them what our Father's Day sermon text was going to be. They were like, I was, it like dawned on me, and I was, I was like one of the characters from Rest of Development, and I was like, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> uh, one of the main characters in, in Rest of Development who says that the most, his name is Job. Uh, his full name is George Oscar Bluth, spelled, so spelled G-O-B. There is initials Job, and people call him Gob throughout the show. It's just the funniest thing to me. Um, and he says over and over again, I've made a huge mistake. And it's funny to watch their misfortune. In this passage, we see Lot, and he's at the end of a lifetime of making huge mistakes. But unlike with Job, unlike with Arrested Development, it's not that funny. It's, there's, it's just a plain dark story. There's no comic relief here. There's no enjoyment in someone's misfortune. This is the last word we have on the character of Lot in Scripture, or in the book of Genesis, in his story. He's referenced later, but this is the last word in his story. Um, and his story, as we've been following it, we've been talking about it a lot over the past few weeks, 
uh, it's been one not so much of him be doing evil things, but of him just being a fool, just foolish steps one by one. He started, uh, for, in, for, forgive me for making this recap again, I've done it before. For those of you who haven't been here before, it's, here's the, the recap of the story of Lot. We meet him first in chapters 11 and 12. He's attached to Abraham, who's his uncle, and he's really like a son to Abraham. And he, he, he travels with Abraham, goes with Abraham down to Egypt in chapter 12. He comes out of Egypt, like Abraham, very wealthy. He has uh, herds and tents. He's got a, a big entourage of people with him. And starting in chapter 13, he and Abraham, they split. And Abraham gives him a, a lot, a choice of the land, wherever he'd like to go. And Lot takes, he goes towards the land that looks towards a valley, towards the cities that look like the garden of the Lord, look like Egypt. And as the narrative goes on, we begin to see, he takes the pick that looks delightful to the eyes, but is actually treacherous to the soul. Already in chapter 14, he's stuck. He has to be rescued by Abraham because he's gotten enmeshed in this like political war going on in the region. So he's already looking like a fool. And as we studied last week in chapter 19, so he, he goes near the city of Sodom, which the text says pretty clearly is wicked in the eyes of the Lord. He starts off going towards it, and then he's camping outside it. By the time we find him in chapter 19, over the course of years, he is at the gates, which means he's become a leader in the city um, of some kind, a person of influence. And he's allowed himself to become enmeshed in this evil city, to get stuck in this evil city. He's married off of his, da- he's married off his daughters. Um, and in the, the, the dark episode that we read last week, he, he even, to try and please the people of the city, the evil men of Sodom who are around his door, God sends the, a couple angels in to rescue him. And they're, they're trying to get him out of the city. And the, the people, the, the men of Sodom outside the city are clamoring, asking for the, the angels to be delivered out to them so that they can sexually abuse them. And Lot, trying to please the crowds, offers up his daughters to them. It's just like this incredibly dark, foolish, like what is going on episode. We talked about that last week. But even in response to all these things, Lot's just treated like a fool. Um, even in Sodom, the men re- reject his request. Uh, the, the angels tell him, we need to get you out of the city. Like, go tell anyone in your family that we need to go. He goes and tells his sons-in-law, and they laugh at him. And even his, you know, even his, his family just treats him like he's, he's a fool. He lingers in the city, even though the angels tell him that it's about to be destroyed. Even as he has to be literally dragged out of the city by the angels. Even in fleeing, he looks like a fool. He begs to go to an easier place, a little city called Zoar, because he's been stuck to cities. This is a lot thing. He's stuck to cities. He begs to go to an easier place. So the angels spare that place so he can flee there. And here in this passage, with all that backstory in mind, even though Lot doesn't even say anything in this passage, there's a lot of, there's much harsh poetry in this being the ending for Lot. Much harsh poetry. Remember how when he left Egypt, he was wealthy and he had herds and tents. Now where is he? He has nothing. He lives in a cave with his two daughters. It's like, to quote Johnny Cash, like at the end, all he had was a grand empire of dirt. Remember how he'd built his life by getting closer and closer to cities? Now he's afraid of them and he's fled from them. Even the place where he begged to go, Zoar, he's fled from there. And he's ended up in the hills, which is exactly where the angels originally told him he was supposed to go. 
And this one, this is the particularly like harsh poetry of this passage. Do you remember how he offered his two daughters to the crowds? Now those two daughters sexually abuse him in his sleep. It's very harsh poetry. He's, he's brought out of control with, through his daughter. His daughters use alcohol. And alcohol really, in my opinion, serves as like kind of a fine illustration of Lot's path, Lot's entire life. Like it, his life almost looks to me like a, a day or a, or a night where someone has way too much to drink, like, but it's for his whole life. He, if you think about alcohol in small quantities, can be quite delightful. Uh, speaking from experience, that's true. Paul, even in the New Testament, recommends uh, alcohol to Timothy. He's like, hey, drink some wine. It's good for your health. But hey, guess what? It's also poison. It's also poison. And imagine someone you know, who has a bit of alcohol at the beginning of the night. The night goes on, and there's one more drink. There's one more drink, and one more drink, attempting to feel better, attempting to feel better. What happens is our systems slowly become flooded, and we lose control. And the very comfort that we're trying to find in the bottle, we come to realize is the very thing that we just can't get. And at the end, the drunkard, at the end of the night, he just looks like a fool, even though he thinks he's wise. Lot's entire life has been like that, except, but except for a night, it's been over the course of his entire lifetime. He ends up have, you know, having pursued, taking little by little all the things that he thought would bring him the comfort or what he was seeking but he ends up being a fool left with nothing. And the comfort that he thought he was getting, it ended up being not that at all. The last, this last word on Lot, it's, it's quite different from his, uh, he's meant to be contrasted a lot with Abraham. He's kind of like a, this like foolish pale imitation of, of Abraham. The last word that we get on Abraham is really different in chapter 25. These are the last words we read about Abraham when he dies a few chapters ahead. It says, These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his fathers. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in a cave of Machpelah, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife." Both Abraham's and Lot's stories end in a cave, but Lot's story ends in foolishness with him out of control. But Abraham's story ends in dignity. His length of years is noted to be like his ancestors. He's buried next to, next to his wife in a place that he had prepared, and he's honored to be buried by his sons. I don't think I have to like preach this text hard for you all to see the warning in Lot's life, in the story of Lot's life. I preached on it last week. Um, I, I hope, like, if you're here and maybe you're investigating the faith, like, you, you may even see, like, there are notes in this story that could even resonate with you where you're like, I know people, people close to me, who have been like Lot, and the last word on them is one of harsh poetry. I've seen them make little mistake after little mistake after little mistake, and I don't want to be like that. But ultimately, and I talked about this some last week, even if we see people outside of us who are like that, ultimately we are not so different from Lot. We're not so different than Job from Arrested Development. We all have places where we look at our lives and we say, I have made a huge mistake. 
And maybe there are places where you are, so you'd be saying that with big things in your life, major financial decisions, decisions around your marriage, how you've parented your kids, ways that you've burned bridges with your loved, with your loved ones. Or maybe you say, I've made a huge mistake when you think of little things, little mistakes that you've made throughout your days. Like, do you ever have moments, do you ever have moments where you think back about something you did or you said, maybe just like a one-liner in conversation, and just thinking about it makes you like physically cringe? Does that happen to anyone else? It's, yeah, some people are raising their hands. It's amazing to me how much like our mistakes, even more than our triumphs, they like they get stuck in our bodies all in a weird way, just like that cringe, like the, and remembering the mistakes that we've made. In so many ways, we're no better than Lot. How if, you remember how I compared Lot's life to a knight? It's like, how, hard look in the mirror question, is how is your life, how have our lives been like Lot's, like a night-long bender, where we end up out of control and looking like a fool. How we, where we are now, looking to where we were then, how it's just slowly we've become more and more foolish and have lost control. How we've been doing something that feels nice bit by bit by bit, but we're actually slowly poisoning ourselves. Is it, could it, is it your connection to like a church community? Is that one? Do you know what's always easier 100% of the time? I've really learned this as I've had kids. It is always easier not to go to home meeting. It is always easier not to go to church, 100% of the time. But disconnecting ourselves from the church, it's poisoned by isolation. Is it decisions that you've made with your money? Do you know what's always easier? 100% of the time is always spending our money on ourselves. But slowly building up a mountain of money and things, the Bible tells us, is poisonous to our souls. There's no U-Haul attached to, the, to a hearse, as they say. Is it how you spend your life online, if that's not a contradiction in terms? You know what's easier? On a place like Twitter, it's always easier for us to look at feeds that make us feel self-justified in our anger. On Instagram, it's always easier to look at feeds that make us feel like our life will be, if it's a bit more like that, will be beloved. On YouTube, it's always easier to look at videos that are self-justifying or mindlessly entertaining. But thinking again of like the image of doing this for a night versus a life, like when, and now I've had these nights, after we've spent like a few hours going through these, like scrolling through these things, how do we feel at the end? We feel empty. We feel enraged or anxious. We hate ourselves. And that's just after one night. How do you think these things are forming us over a lifetime? Lot story, this bit by bit, poisoning ourselves, poisoning ourselves. It's a warning for our day. It's a warning for me. It's a warning for us. But there's also, there is also hope in this passage. And I think it's, it's pretty buried, but I'm going to try and unearth it for us um, today with God's help. Um, even in this dark, even in the darkness of this cave, I think that there's hope. 
Um, and the, so I want to talk about, I've been talking about Lot, and let's move towards talking about his daughters, what they do in this passage. So Lot's daughters, they perform incestuous sexual abuse. This is, this is what happened. Uh, they, I know I've been beating up on Lot, and I think the text war, it, it warrants that, but really here, at this fi- even though he's, this is, in his life he's a fool, and this is a mess of his own making, uh, at the, in this final episode, he is a victim. He, and it, he, the text really clearly wants us to know that he doesn't know what's going on. I'm going to, as I talk about what um, his daughters did here, I'm going to try and thread a very careful, uh, like a very careful interpretive needle. Um, in modern ethics, in modern philosophy, whenever we try and talk about, you know, what's good and what's bad, we, we always try to look at, it very, very surgically, look at every single individual human action and diagnose whether it's good or bad, whether it's warranted or not, uh, whether it's justified or not. And if we take that approach with what Lot's daughters did, then we, we have to say, absolutely, yeah, it was bad. 100% bad, 100% evil, Never, like, the Bible does not condone this at all. If you look at Leviticus, a couple books over in the Bible, you'll see that incest is, is pretty flatly never allowed. Um, other, there are other stories in Scripture, such as with David and Bathsheba, where when someone uses power to sexually get what he, he or in this case, she wants from a weaker party, that it's evil, that it's morally reprehensible. The Bible's quite clear about that. Just because something happens in the Bible does not mean that it's okay. Something can be described, but not prescribed, if that makes sense. And at the same time, it's kind of, there's like a striking ambiguity that the actions of the daughters isn't condemned outright in this passage. Um, like, contrast that with a previous passage I, I preached on a few months ago um, from Genesis 9 which is after the flood, Noah and his family are, are out of the, the ark. So Noah's a guy who just got rescued out of a great destruction, and then he gets drunk. Does that sound familiar? This is exactly what, happened with, what happens with Lot in this passage. And his son Ham walks by his tent, sees him naked, and goes on and tells his brothers about it. And the phrase he sees is his brother, see, seeing his father's nakedness in that story, that could have been a euphemism for some like sexual impropriety, um, but it could also have just been that Ham merely dishonored his father by not covering Noah and dignifying him. But the result in Genesis 9 was clear, like God cursed Ham's descendants for, because of Ham's action or inaction. But here we don't get a curse. We don't get a curse on the daughter's descendants, even though it would have been natural for there to be a nasty word said about Moab and Ammon, who, in, by the way, in the Ammonites, which who, by the way, in the future are not always going to be friendly with the people of Israel throughout the rest of the story of the Bible. So I'm going to do. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do some more hyperlinks. I, did, I talked about this last week. I, as I and going a little Bible adventure here. In this story, I hear echoes of another theme in Scripture, a common like storytelling motif, uh, which is that there was when, when women take uh, action in a socially impossible situation, and they use trickery or cunning to try and secure a blessing or to ensure a blessing for their descendants. And sometimes this goes well, sometimes this doesn't go well, but across all of the cases, God blesses their descendants 
It's a really curious like storytelling thing that happens again and again and again and again and again in scripture. So a few weeks ago, I preached about Sarah doing this with Hagar. She's like, I can't have kids. Here, here's a slave girl. I could like, Abraham, you can have kids. I'll, I'll grow through you having kids through her. Um, that whole episode didn't go well. Didn't go well, but Ishmael, the son of that union, was still blessed. Um, looking ahead, Rebecca, uh, he, she tricks Isaac, her, her husband Isaac, because she wants her favorite son, Jacob, to get the blessing instead of Esau, which apparently that's how things were supposed to go, and she, she tricks Isaac. Go read what Tamar does with Judah in chapter 38. There's a lot of resonances in that story with this one. Or go see what happens in Exodus 1 with the Hebrew midwives where there are these Hebrew midwives who make sure that the Hebrew babies don't die by tricking Pharaoh, by lying to him. And, and the text tells us very clearly that they're blessed. In all these instances, God blesses the children that the women use trickery to save. Um, and God, and at the end of this passage, he blesses Moab and Ben-Ami, who are the descendants of this sinister episode. Um, and it goes on throughout Scripture. Here, listen, this is from Deuteronomy 2. This is Moses commanding the Israelites. He says, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession. The same is said about the Ammonites later in that same chapter. Here's even later in the Bible, in Isaiah 16. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter for them from the destroyer. So these people are, they end up being blessed. Even though they're a lot of times they're enemies of the Israelites later on in the story, they're still blessed and protected and watched over by God. And perhaps most strikingly, uh, Ruth, if you, if, um, and like I said, this has been quite a Bible adventure. Thank you all for keeping up with me here. Um, Ruth uh, is descended from Moab. Ruth, uh, the, the, the character of a few books forward, what is, and what does Ruth do, by the way? That like the climax of the story with Ruth is she approaches um, a man after she approaches Boaz in the night after he's had enough to eat and drink and he's asleep. She approaches him. Sound familiar? But instead of instead of doing it in a, in a way that's sinister, she does it with humility and with purity. And he asks her to redeem her, to set her up in a family, because she because he's distantly related to her. And, he, and through that, he ends up marrying her. And from that union, Moab to Ruth, from that union comes the line of David. From that line comes our Lord Jesus and his salvation for the world. Are you starting to hear a different poetry here? So a, a poetry that goes with the harsh poetry. It doesn't neglect the harsh poetry that we see in this passage about Lot, but also the harsh poetry in a way that, we never, that one never could have expected is ultimately folded into a more beautiful poetry. This, what I said, it's true. This incident in the cave is actually a deeply hidden part of Jesus Christ's backstory. Like Jesus is, came downstream from this. The author of history he wove the darkness of this story somehow into the salvation of the whole world. Like this is, this is not a, this is not a, like a, a, a scene from, to, to quote a, another show, this is not like a dark scene from like a Game of Thrones episode 
where you just, it has no meaning and it's just dark and you just feel terrible afterwards? No. God somehow uses this story as a thread in the fabric of redemption. Which, you know what that reminded me of? You guessed it. J.R.R. Tolkien's The Silmarillion. Um, uh, I, was, I was considering not including this as, as, as an illustration, but uh, today is actually uh, Kurt and Katie Rose last Sunday, and I was, and Kurt one time made fun of me for going like really specific into a Lord of the Rings reference, and uh, so I was like, you know what, it's Kurt and Katie Rose last Sunday, I'm going to do my Silmarillion reference. Um, the, so the Silmarillion, is, it's kind of like the, the creation. It's, I want to particularly cite the creation story, the first chapter of the Silmarillion. It's the creation story for this, you know, this made-up world of J.R.R. Tolkien's universe. And he describes how the world is created. And it's, it parallels a lot how he thinks our own world was created. And um, Tolkien describes how in the beginning there's this one god and, uh, named Iluvatar. And this one god, he creates these like angelic creatures through song. And they each, and all these beautiful angelic creatures who are one's responsible for this, one's responsible for that, one's responsible for this, they all join in this beautiful first song together, this beautiful chorus that each, you know, it's, it's the most beautiful harmony, the greatest, mo- most wide-ranging accompaniment of instruments that you've ever heard. It's the first song. That's how the world is born. But then, in the second song, the greatest most gifted of these angelic figures, uh, whose name is, is Melkor. He's a sa- obviously a Satan guy. He ends up being the main villain throughout the Silmarillion. He sings, a, he sings in defiance against the first song. He sings a discordant, chaotic notes, repetitive notes, like clashing cymbals notes. And some of the other angel-like figures, they join him. And they sing a great, the, against the great first song. Others are despondent and don't know what to sing. But then, there's a third song. And the third song is started by God, by Iluvatar. He starts off, this third song, it starts off solemn, gentle, and sweet. And it's a, it is slowly is at war with the second song, which the, the dark angels are singing, singing, singing against the, against the song. But then the third song does this wild thing. It starts to take the chaos and the discordant notes the cacophony of the second song. It starts to take those notes and it starts to weave those notes in to a more beautiful third song. Like it actually uses those notes. And somehow this third song, it's more brilliant, it's more beautiful because it incorporates the darkness, the discord of the second song. And that's how the world was created, according to Tolkien. And maybe not far off from how our world was actually created as well. This is the story of our world. This is the story of what happens in this cave, is that somehow in the fullness of time, our big mistakes and our little mistakes, the things that happen in the darkest of caves, are woven into the great story of God's redemption for the entire world. Which reminds me of of another cave. Uh, Let me tell you about this cave. In this cave, this dark cave, there lies a man who is dead. What happened to this man was just plain wrong. He was the kindest, he was a better man than any man you've ever met. And he was murdered unjustly, even though he did, be, did nothing wrong at all. Quite the opposite. 
his friends are coming to apply ointments and to his flesh so that he won't decompose and rot. And this man is Jesus Christ, dead in a cave, tortured, scourged, mocked, murdered in the most evil act that was ever perpetrated. And now he lies dead in a dark cave. The women close to him are coming to the cave where he's been buried on the third day, and they find that he's gone. An angel appears to them and tells them that he is risen. One of the women goes to a nearby garden, and, and he reveals himself to her there by calling her by name. Jesus is resurrected out of the darkness of the cave, and the world is made new. There's no new life. There's no new hope. There's no resurrection without the darkness of the cave first. The story of the Bible, the story of Christ, is that second song, that dark second song being woven in to the great and glorious third song. Do you see what this means? Do you see what this means for us? The places where I've, I've had us look at our mistakes, our huge mistakes, our big, small, our ongoing mistakes, the ones we've done in the open or the ones that we've done in darkness. Because this is the story of the world, um, and particularly the story for those of us who have faith in Christ. It means this. It means that our greatest mistakes are not what define us. They're left with the wrappings in Jesus' tomb. For those of us who have faith in Christ, we're united with him in his death and in his resurrection. We're washed clean. Those second songs, whether sung by us or sung by those who have heard us, they're woven into the glorious third song. In Jesus' resurrection, the Bible says, death is swallowed up in victory. Our mistakes are woven into a greater story. They aren't meaningless, but they're grafted into the story of what, how God is saving the world. You are not your worst mistake. You are not defined by the things that you did on the worst day of your life. You are hidden with Christ in God. That's what the New Testament says. And I think that's buried deep down in this story we read today. Of course, this doesn't mean that there isn't a hard road of repentance and turning away from our mistakes and turning away from living like Lot. Of course, that's, that, it doesn't mean that, that we aren't called to hard steps in following Christ. But we're not alone. The end of the story is written, and the story is not primarily about our mistakes, but about how our mistakes are somehow part of the plan for God to make all things new and make us new. The same God, the same God, who turns incestuous abuse in a cave into a key thread of redemption for the world. This same God, surely if he can do that, then he's not done with us, right? To suggest that would be, be, it would be blasphemy. This is a God who is mighty to save. His third song, the one that swallows up death and victory, is the most glorious, and we'll be seeing it for all eternity. And I would invite you, as you reflect on these mistakes, just the cave, like the cave is such an image of darkness, the cave-like moments from our own lives. 
I would invite you to take those as we sing our, the final song we're going to sing today at the end of our worship service is a song called We Will Feast in the House of Zion. Here are the, the, some of the words from the chorus of that song. We will sing in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.